This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey Gumshoes, welcome to episode number two of Detect This here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my fellow detective, Charlie Nash. Hey Andrew. How are you doing, Charlie? Uh, having an annoying day. I've been trying to find out where this brothel is, and these people at this gas station were clearly lying to me, so I just had to beat the shit out of them. Yeah, it's been rough for me too. I was with this prostitute asking her questions, and she wanted to have sex. Can you believe that? Oh. Ooh, that's awkward. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this week we're going to be discussing episode two of season one of True Detective. The episode is titled Seeing Things, and like every episode this season, it was written by Nick Pizzolatto and directed by Kerry Fukunaga. Uh, you may have noticed we had a little bit of a delay getting last week's episode out. We apologize for that. Uh, we, we're, we're working out all the kinks. We're making sure the iTunes feeds are up and running properly. The detect this email address is now working properly, so hopefully the wrinkles are all ironed out now. Uh, our goal is to have episodes up by uh, Wednesday or Thursday at the absolute latest, so we will we'll try to be better about that in the future. But we have lives, and we get busy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we talk about this episode... Uh, we did get a little bit of feedback. We had a couple comments on the website. Matrices wrote in and said, The pilot episode was excellent. I agree. I do too. Yes, I thought it was a very, very solid pilot. Uh, we also got a comment from Sterling, who says, quote, uh, I liked the premiere episode. I thought the acting, scenery, and pacing was very well done. I can't say that I'm a Matthew McConaughey fan. I just haven't seen any of his movies that I can remember. But he's really great on True Detective. I loved Woody Harrelson in Natural Born Killers and in White Men Can't Jump. I guess I have a new show to watch on Sundays. Now the question is, Downton Abbey or True Detective? Because I think both air at the same time. Ooh. Well... Uh, if you have HBO Go, you can always watch Downton Abbey live and then watch True Detective uh, afterwards because anyone who has an HBO subscription uh, automatically gets HBO Go for free. Right. Or if you have DVR, which some of us are fortunate to have, including my parents, uh, you can always tape one of them. And uh, yeah, uh, definitely rent Failure to Launch. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> Matthew yeah, McConaughey's best work. Some it's <laughs> best work that and how to lose a guy in 10 days but no if uh i remember that i was not a big matthew mcconaughey fan for the longest time because for a while in the early 2000s in particular he was kind of one of those actors who always uh was known for having his shirt off and starring in a uh, really bad romantic comedies typically starring kate hudson and i remember that the only thing i liked him in was dazed and confused which was over 10 years ago when I was not a fan of him. And he really surprised me with Killer Joe, Magic Mike. I'm pretty sure, actually, I think I said this last episode, so I don't need to go into details of that. But yeah, he's been on a roll recently. As someone who has seen the complete fourth season of Downton Abbey already, I'm just going to say it's Downton Abbey. If you like Downton Abbey, 
it's more of that. <laughs> it is more Downton Abbey. <laughs> if you're looking for something a little bit newer and fresher, I'd say stick with True Detective. But, uh, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it's it's Downton Abbey. It is what it is. The, the show, it's not a bad show, but it's not exactly breaking any new ground at this point. That is the most lukewarm review I can think of. Like, it's Downton Abbey. It's, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I know what you mean, though. I kind of say the same thing about shows I love, like Mad Men. Like, Mad Men Season 6 is Mad Men Season 6. And while I think it's one of the best seasons of the show, it's still very Mad Men-esque. So, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, dive into this episode. Charlie, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened in Seeing Things. We learn that Hart is having an affair with Lisa from the courthouse, and Cole has spent years as an undercover narcotics agent before ending up in a psych ward. They're given two weeks to make progress on the Dora Lang investigation. They interview Dora's mother and other prostitutes and finally wind up at, quote-unquote, The Ranch, a backyard's trailer park that functions as a whorehouse. An underage prostitute gives them Dora's diary, which contains a flyer for a religious revival. At the end of the episode, they find a burnt-down church and discover that someone painted a naked woman on the wall who looks suspiciously like Dora's corpse. All right, well, to start things off, Charlie, what were your overall thoughts on the second episode of True Detective? I thought this was just as good as the pilot. I enjoyed it quite a bit, and uh, I enjoyed it for basically the same reasons I enjoyed the pilot. I think that the show is really good at character development, and while the um, murder investigation is very intriguing, and uh, we're getting more clues as to uh, what Dora was up to before her murder. I feel like they are typical plot developments for most mainstream crime sagas, but the fact that it's done so well and it feels so fresh makes it a lot of fun, and I think that whenever they incorporate the murder investigation into something about how it relates to the character's past or how it de can develop them further or it relates to gender politics. That's when I find it to be the most intriguing. I mean, we've seen in this episode, a lot of the plot points are plot points that we've seen in other crime shows. The interviews with the parents, they find a diary, they, they go to a whorehouse. We've seen this sort of stuff before, but the writing is so good and the performances are so good that it felt fresh and it was exciting to kind of revisit these tropes when Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson are so good in these roles and the writing is so crisp. So yeah, it's, yeah, I just thought it was really, really entertaining. And I thought it, uh, like the previous episode, it casts a gothic spell over, at least over me as a viewer, so... I agree with you. I think this was a, a, a really good second episode. I like how the show seems to be prioritizing character over plot. We've seen so many crime shows in the past couple of years that we, we've seen stuff like this before where you've got detectives investigating a creepy murder. And it seems like the actual investigation is progressing fairly slowly. The first episode, they find one clue at the end of the episode. This episode, they find one more clue, another burnt-down church. So it's progressing at a pretty slow pace, but I don't mind it because it's using the time to focus so much on the characters and their relationship and their personal lives and who they are as individuals. I find that much more rewarding. So to start diving into specifics, the first thing I want to talk about is heart. Last week, I, I asked you, Charlie, do you think he's having an affair with that woman from the courthouse? Turns out, yes, he is. Her name is Lisa, and they're fond of role play and the sexy times. 
Yeah, she doesn't like to wear pants. Yes. <laughs> well, who does, Charlie? <laughs> Come on. I know. I'm I'm not wearing pants, Andrew, yeah. are you? Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> I mean, no. I, I just have to sit in front of a computer with a microphone. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we find out that he is sleeping with Lisa. He's having an affair. And he justifies this to himself as it's good for my marriage, actually, because I'm able to release all this stress from the job here with this other woman, and then I can go home and be a good family man. Which, I can see how he would justify it to himself that way, Charlie, if his marriage seemed healthy, but it does not seem healthy. Yeah, last week I said, oh, his marriage seems perfectly healthy, and this week I'm like, oh, no, it's not. (laughs) And uh, I have to admit, I find him to be intriguingly flawed in this uh, in this way, but it really annoyed me because it just he's as we said before he's a man of faith he's an, uh, he doesn't want to hear Matthew McConaughey's pessimistic views of the world and yet he has this incredibly hypocritical view of women and how this is quote unquote good for the family and how he won't listen to women saying you want to have your cake and eat it too. And the show clearly recognizes that. And I thought that the show brought up a lot of interesting things on how he views women and how a lot of men, especially in these types of detective shows, view women and how they're depicted. And I really thought that the scene in the locker room with Matthew McConaughey, where he calls him out on how he was wearing the same clothes as this day before and he gets really defensive. I found that to be so darkly funny because he's like, what do you know what my wife's pussy smells like? Well, I don't. It's just that you're wearing the same clothes and I'm not stupid. <laughs> and, right. then, and then it shifts from really darkly funny to really chilling where he talks about how he can break his wrists even though he's clearly shoving Cole into a locker and seems to have the upper hand. Cole is perfectly monotonous and indifferent and it's just like i can break your wrist just by pulling this way and i'm just like oh my god this is like it it, i feel like there are a lot of scenes like that in the show where there's a lot of dark humor and then the scene keeps going and it usually ends in something that gives me the creeps or is very disturbing what do you think about it though andrew i really like the dynamic they're developing between these two characters you've got Hart, who does seem to be your standard upstanding man of the law he's married he's got a family he's religious and in contrast cole is the one who has lost his family he's broken he was on all these drugs he's been in the mental institution but at least in 1995 and and perhaps even to a certain extent in the 2012 sequences cole seems like a much healthier person in a weird way even though last week we talked a lot about how he's kind of weird and he has all these quirks and maybe he's the killer Mm -hmm. when it comes to himself and his personal life he seems to have it more under control than heart aside from the occasional slip off the wagon when it comes to his alcoholism you know you've got heart is the married guy who's having an affair and sleeping around he's a giant hypocrite while cole is single but instead of sleeping around he's staying pretty chaste he doesn't even have sex with the prostitute who says that she'd give him a good deal because he's cute And he's taking all of these quaaludes, apparently just to sleep, (laughs) not for the high. So he's he's surrounded by all of this grimy stuff, but he actually has standards that he sticks to, perhaps because he's been broken, which I find fascinating. Yeah. Um, And and also, I want to point out, I was reading Eric Adams' review over at the AV Club, 
And he pointed out that McConaughey's doing some really interesting work with his performance, where if you, if you pay attention, you know, in the sequences that take place in 1995, Cole is very monotonous. He keeps the same tone. He doesn't really have many facial expressions. The only time we really see him break this serious focus that he seems to be in is when he beats up those guys at the shop. And when he has these small hallucinations. And those that's the only time he kind of just breaks that mask. Whereas in the 2012 sequences, sure, he's an alcoholic, but he seems much more jovial. He's making jokes. He seems kind of dry and witty. And as he points out to the other detectives, yeah, I'm an alcoholic and I basically just work four times a week and then spend all the rest of my time drinking. But there's a victory in that, in this, in the sense that he knows who he is by the time we get to 2012. And I find that really interesting, just the little things McConaughey does in his performance to indicate that maybe the guy in 2012 isn't quite as broken as we would like to think. Maybe he's perfectly content. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, how Woody Harrelson in 2012 is still defending the fact that he had an affair, even though... That happened, what, 17 years ago? And it's like, that that's part of the reason why I was so annoyed with him, is I was just like, dude, like, I'm assuming this wrecked your marriage somehow, because you're admitting it to the cops, and clearly someone found out about it, and you're still defending it? What? And... It seems like Matthew McConaughey, even though he knows who he is in 1995, learned even more about himself by 2012. And (laughs) for some reason, when you said jovial, I just imagined like a happy-go-lucky Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) Like as if he's like the the future Matthew McConaughey for this week's episode will be played by Will Smith or something. (laughs) But uh, it'll take another 17 years for that Matthew McConaughey, that version of Cole. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to roll around. But yeah, I, I like how in 2012, Hart is kind of in denial about who he is and what he's done. And Cole is just, he's been, he's very uh, self-reflective and he can admit when he's wrong. And he's just straight up and is like, yeah, I am not a good person to be around. I was in another serious relationship that didn't work out and it was mostly my fault. So he seems to have accepted himself and his brokenness, and his flaws. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to be living the the greatest life, but he seems to be happy with who he is. I wouldn't say happy, because I, I, I'd say that if that's happy, that's a really sad form of happy. That's like... Oh, yeah, it's, I'm not saying it's not sad. It's not, well, I guess, I'd say he's more better than he is in 1995, but, I mean, like, he does still say in 2012, I wear people down, I'm not a pleasant person to be around, and, you know, the scene with the prostitute, where, it was another scene where I ended like, ooh, that ended on a really kind of creepy note, where she's like, you seem, like, weird, kind of dangerous, and he's like, yeah, I'm dangerous, I'm the cops, and I can do terrible things to you and get away with immunity. And going to Matthew McConaughey and our theory on last week's episode about how he could be the killer, I feel like this week supported a lot of our theories and also the fact that the investigation is now going deeper and he's interviewing people on his own. It makes it both harder and easier for us to defend this in some ways because I was like, oh, he has hallucinations and the victim had LSD in her system. Maybe she was trying to connect his visions to hers and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, why is he going around interviewing prostitutes? Why is he beating up people at a gas station to find out where a brothel is? So I think that that is 
for the most part, a little less likely this week, but I still find it to be fascinating. Also, his hallucinations, oddly enough, the world gets brighter. I noticed that, where he hallucinates things like car lights or the sky getting brighter. And I found that to be interesting because the world he's in is so dark that whenever he has these visions that are the result of the fact that he was so addicted to drugs back when he was an undercover cop, I found that to be interesting that the world actually gets brighter and somehow that's a freakier thing for him. Like, that's terrifying for him. Did you think anything about that at all? It didn't seem to me like the world was getting brighter, per se. I didn't really notice much of a pattern between his hallucinations. You know, the first time, he's got all those streaming car lights around him. The second time, he's imagining these orangish, goldish type of clouds rolling in. And then at the end of the episode, he sees a flock of birds make the shape of the symbol that was on Dorling's back. Oh, yeah, you're right. That was a hallucination. I did forget about that one. That's the one time where it was actually kind of dark because the birds were black and they formed this shape in the bright blue sky. But also that shot of the church was my favorite shot of the whole episode. But I I assume we'll get to that soon. Which shot of the church? Uh, that's that's a good point. All of them. <laughs> like, I thought that uh, I thought that, that scene in particular, whether it was inside or outside of the church, I thought that was a really haunting image. Much It, it got to me much like the shot of the field on fire did in the pilot. Well, there's a really great shot of the church from the outside when we first really get a look at it. And you can tell it's kind of burned down, but there's still that one stained glass window gleaming brightly Mm -hmm. in the midst of this burned down husk of a building. And I thought that that was really, really interesting. But uh, getting back to Matthew McConaughey's character, Cole, and, and his hallucinations... There was a moment that I was surprised at at how the script handled it. Uh, it, When he's describing how he used to go undercover and his whole journey from how he got into drugs and he was basically the state just kind of sent him undercover wherever they needed him. And eventually he shot a guy and wound up in the psych ward. And I feel like in a lot of shows, this would be a really dramatic scene Mm -hmm. where there'd be like piano music or something. Yeah. And it would be really sappy and gross. Yeah. (laughs) He'd be really sappy and he'd be uh, coming clean to Woody Harrelson's character or some other person that he trusts. It'd just be this really big emotional moment. And here, he just kind of lays it all out there. And then, like, in a single sentence, it's basically like, oh, yeah. And one night, a guy injected his infant with a vial of crystal meth, so I shot him to death. And then he just moves on. And I'm like, whoa, that's creepy. Yeah. (laughs) And doesn't he say that it was to purify the baby, too? Yes. Which is also creepy. Yes. But, like, he doesn't pause. There's no, like, real... The way he, he says it and the way the episode's edited... There's no real emphasis on it. He just says it, and then he just moves on. And I was just like, whoa. In other shows, that would just be played up like a really big deal. And it's almost more chilling to just pass by it. Yeah, and there probably would have been a flashback of him sobbing with a dead baby in his arms or something. And <laughs> and then doesn't he make like a really dark joke where he's like, yeah, they sent me to this psych ward in Texas. Uh, have you ever been to Texas? Can you imagine what a psych ward is there? Ugh. Like, <laughs> I thought that was actually kind of amusing. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was about Texas as a state or if it was this location in Texas, but either 
either way, the line got to me. And I guess to go back to Hart really quickly, I did forget to bring up this one thing. I love the scene where they go to the brothel and he gets very offended or he's very upset to see that there's this underage girl who's about 16 or 17 years old working there. And earlier in the episode, we had seen him have playful sex with the woman he's having an affair with where she handcuffs him to a bed, giving him his rights. And then there's this scene in the brothel where he's almost disgusted by the fact that there is this 16 to 17 year old girl there and he confronts the person who pays for the lease and says she doesn't look like a woman who can make her own decisions and then the woman who runs the brothel says well you know a woman's body is her body she can do what she wants with it women fuck people all the time for free and not to mention why does it bother you so much i know why it bothers you so much because you don't own what you thought you owned, or something along those lines. And I thought that was very reflective of his character and how he treats women as if they're possessions. And that, you know, he can be married, but he can also go off and have sex with this woman as if she's something he can use to decompress from the rest of his life and then go back and be a quote-unquote responsible father. So I thought that was a very interesting scene. I agree. I thought that was a great scene as well. We questioned... Last week, you know, is the show's depiction of women sexist? And I like how this episode indicated that, no, that's actually going to be a primary theme of the show. Mm-hmm. How do men view women? How do, how do men use women? And what is, quote unquote, empowering for a woman and what is not? And Hart, there's a, an interesting line when he's having that argument with his wife. The key line that stood out to me is she asks him something like, well, what did you think marriage is for or, or, or something. And he says something to the effect of, well, it's to make me happy. Yeah. Oh, that made me so angry. <laughs> you can tell that this is a guy who is very selfish. He gets stressed out at work and he thinks that as a result, everything else in his life should kind of bow to that. He wants his family to serve him and his needs should take top priority. And we get a a taste of how that's affecting things, not only through his troubled marriage, but the fact that apparently his children are playing police with their dolls. Which was also a very disturbing scene. That shot really got under my skin. (laughs) Yes. So apparently he's not keeping the job and his personal life as separate as he would like. Despite his best efforts and him telling himself, oh, I'm having this affair so I can keep work separate from home, it's all bleeding over anyway. Mm-hmm. And do you think that in a way it was the show was being reflexive through his sex scene with the woman from the courthouse because she's gorgeous, she's topless, like she has the, a beautiful, beautiful body. And I feel like the show was kind of like... Well, at first when that happened, I was like, oh, maybe this show isn't going to be about sexism at all. And maybe it will be slightly sexist and be like, we're on HBO. We can show nudity and sex all the time. But then I feel like that woman stood up for herself after that sex scene, despite the fact that he did go down on her later. I found that to be a little reflexive of kind of the show, the writers and the directors kind of saying, we know what you expect out of these cop shows, and we know that they're typically womanizers, so we're going to give you that, but then we're going to make you feel bad about wanting that. Do you feel like there was any sort of self-awareness there? I'm not really sure. You know, when it comes to, to nudity on HBO shows, I'm I'm unsure how to feel about it most of the time because I feel like for a long time, especially, say, 10 years ago, people just associated HBO as the channel where you can show nudity. 
You know, it's a premium channel. That's where you go if you want to hear your curse words and you want to see boobs. And <laughs> that would be a really good tagline, I'm sure. <laughs> right, right. And to a certain extent, I think the network does rely on that sometimes. And, and, and sometimes I think their nudity is gratuitous and other times it's not. Well, okay. To be fair, I'd say most of the time I don't think it's gratuitous. I think you can justify it creatively on most HBO shows. But if you if you look at shows like uh, Game of Thrones or even Girls to a certain extent, where th- there's a lot of graphic sex and nudity on those shows, and even though there was nudity in this episode, it didn't strike me nearly as explicit as some of the other things that HBO has shown. Definitely. And and True Blood, too. But there is some things about sex and nudity on these shows like True Blood and Game of Thrones. I would argue the men are just as naked and just as good looking as the women. So I feel like it kind of objectifies both genders, even though I but because I feel like Game of Thrones, too. Uh, just a quick, quick side note, and then I'll get off of this. Game of Thrones is also like True Detective, where it lives in a sexist society where women are looked down upon as a lesser gender. But but at the same time, you're right. There are certain scenes of Game of Thrones where I think, is this saying something about uh, the way men view women, or is this just supposed to satisfy men's lust for nudity and uh, sex and the exploitation of women? But it, it is an interesting point to bring up because it did concern me. As soon as she took her top off and the shot was like clearly focused on her breasts, I was like, oh, maybe the show isn't as concerned about gender as me and Andrew originally thought it was. But then there were all those other scenes afterwards which made me think, oh, maybe it is trying to make a statement on how men view women and it's also using us as the target. Kind of like how another off-topic thing, but then I'll get off of it, Harmony Corinne kind of had us uh, want our cake and eat it too and then feel uh, disgusted by the excess of it in Spring Breakers or Martin Scorsese in uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Right, I was just about to say, maybe True Detective is trying to have its cake and eat it too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But I find that to be interesting in a way that some shows and movies are kind of putting viewers in that spot where they want their cake and eat it too. And then they're disgusted by the excess to the point where they want to throw the cake up and take a shower and go to bed for like over 14 hours because they feel like horrible human beings. But yeah, maybe I'm going a little too far here on this specific subject, but it was just something I was thinking about. Well, no, I I think it's an important question. It's honestly a hard issue to answer just because, again, I don't know how HBO as a company looks at that. You know, maybe to a certain extent they do want to include a certain amount of graphic nudity just because they do want to make sure that that continues to be part of their brand where people can know, yes, that's HBO, that's the adult channel, that's where they have the freedom to do things like this. They want people to know that they are very different from typical broadcast TV. So, you know, I'm not sure how to judge decisions like that. As a random tangent, since we're on this topic, I will say in terms of graphic nudity that critiques the role of sexism but also offers it to the audience i think the best show and the best example of that was spartacus actually on stars which had tons of graphic sex and nudity and was very kind of campy and trashy in a way 
but that was sort of part of the point. <laughs> and, and I think that that show managed to have its cake and eat it too quite well most of the time. I have not seen Spartacus Blood and Sand, but I did listen to a hate cast episode which talked about an interview that one of the creators was criticized for that show. And apparently in his defense, one of uh, one of the creators said it was common for them to have sex with their slaves or something. And that just made me laugh. But I haven't seen the show. So, <laughs> well, it works in Spartacus because Spartacus is all about these gladiators that enter the arena and the crowd is just there cheering, wanting to see as much violence and blood and excess as possible. And, oh, and in a way, the show mm-hmm. kind of was that itself. Okay. Uh, and, and it seemed very aware of that, I think, at times. It seemed to recognize there were certain groups of people that were kind of tuning in for the same reason, just to see the graphic violence and all, and all the sex. Oh, I can definitely see what you're, where both you and the creators are coming from then, definitely. But is there graphic nudity and in treatment, Andrew? Because I'm only through <laughs> the first season. I, I, I feel like that would be really uh, out of place yes. for that show. Unless yes. he uh, has nudists that uh, sign up for therapy. But there, there are a few HBO shows that do not have nudity. You are <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, moving on, getting back to that whole thing we talked about with Cole and, and, and last week, with his whole philosophy and his whole worldview, there's a sequence in this episode where it alternates between him waking up in the morning and Hart waking up in the morning. And it's a really great montage where you see Hart surrounded by his kids and his family. And in contrast, Cole is all alone in his room, sleeping on a mattress on the floor with the cross hanging on the wall. And it looks so sparse. And there's a shot later on where he... He has this little tiny mirror that he looks into that is only big enough for him to see his eye. So he just looks into his own eye and he seems that seems to be part of his ritual. And I was thinking to myself, okay, that's kind of interesting that he would have this little tiny mirror just so he can look into his own eye. And it seemed very meditative, very contemplative. I think it fits with the character. There is a cynical side of me, Charlie, that is wondering, at the end of this season, will we come away saying, oh man, all that philosophical stuff with Cole was really great and nuanced, or will we come away saying, well, it, it was kind of all pretentious, and it was kind of a facade, and it's, it, it was the show just doling out little things that are supposed to appear deep, but then when you actually think about it, they actually really aren't. I hope that it all adds up to something, but I agree with you. I think that his philosophy is the most one of the most interesting parts of the show. But that is true. It could be just filler. It could be really, really meaty filler, but it could just be filler. I hope not, because, oh, once again, sorry, everyone, I'm br- going to bring up Seven again. I know you're probably sick to death of me bringing this movie up, but... The philosophical dynamic between Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman was something that when I was watching it, I was like, I have no idea what this is going to add up to. And then it ended up being part of the movie that haunted me the most was how both of them viewed the world in certain ways and how one of them ended up changing that perspective and one of them kept that perspective, but continued to be optimistic despite the fact that they had the more pessimistic view compared to the person whose philosophy changed. And I don't want to spoil Seven because it's a fantastic movie. And if you haven't seen that movie or have not been spoiled by the ending, go rent it right now, especially if you're listening to this podcast and like True Detective. But yeah, 
I hope it's not filler. It would at least be better filler than a lot of other shows give us. I would take this over gratuitous sex, for example, or dumb side characters who have nothing to do with anything. And <laughs> speaking of side characters, the one character that really annoyed me for a little while, but then gave me the biggest laugh was their boss. Because for a while, their boss is just kind of on their ass and is a typical police chief who's just like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You haven't gotten anything. You have no clues. And then, you know, he's telling Matthew McConaughey to shut up. And I'm just like, oh, this guy's unpleasant. But then he had my favorite line in the entire episode where he tells Matthew McConaughey to shut the fuck up. And then Matthew McConaughey raises his hand when he wants to talk uh, at his next point, And he goes, wow, even with your mouth shut, you're a smart ass. And I just <laughs> thought that was so funny. I don't know why. Yeah, that was a great moment. Their boss is played by Kevin Dunn, who's appeared in pretty much everything. He's a great, great character actor. Uh, a lot of people may recognize him as Shia LaBeouf's father in the Transformers films. Ugh. <laughs> uh, let's not bring up those <laughs> those movies or those performances, because they were like the worst part of that series, in that, apart from the racist robots, but anyway. <laughs> well, getting back to this whole idea of the philosophy of the show and whether or not there's anything to it, I'm wondering... You know, I, I like the show so far, and I like the fact that it's exploring all of these philosophical and, and religious elements. I'm wondering if it would really work with lesser actors, because there are certain lines in the show, I, I, I hear them, and they work in the moment. But in the back of my mind, I'm going, that's kind of a cheesy line, and if it wasn't Matthew McConaughey saying that, I, it might rub me the wrong way. It might seem really on the nose. Like, there's a line when he says, uh, he's talking about seeing things, and he says, Most of the time, I was convinced that I'd lost it. There were other times, I thought I was mainlining the secret truth of the universe. Oh, I do remember that <laughs> line. That was, like, that was so... It, yeah, you're right. If Matthew McConaughey uh, says it, then, I, I, you know, even though Matthew McConaughey said it, and I bought it for the most part, that was such a pretentious line. I agree with you. I do think it's well-written for the most part, though. But. Right. It, it's walking a fine line between hope and just pure camp mm -hmm. at times. And it needs to be careful, I think, not to cross the line into camp where suddenly we're laughing at it instead of with it. So, so yeah, I, I'm hoping that it'll maintain this tone throughout the rest of the season and that at the end of eight episodes, we won't be like, oh, well, that philosophy stuff really didn't seem to matter much. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with you because that's one of the problems I had with the killing is the killing started off so strong and then it just got so stupid that I was just laughing at every single plot twist that happened in that show. And yet... Tonally, it was consistent, but the fact that it started off so dark and the writing was so good and then contained that dark tone for the majority of its first season, but the writing got worse, made it a worse show, oddly enough. So I agree with you. If, if it's going to go in the camp, at least change the tone, because this is a really dark show. It's a very depressing experience at times. But as we've pointed out, there are moments of dark comedy. Oh, oh, absolutely. I'm just saying that there are, when they're, when it's dark, it's really dark. I would not recommend this show to people who are severely depressed because Matthew McConaughey has some very valid, but also very terrifying theories on the nature of mankind. And 
I feel like it can be, uh, you know, like at least you're, you're right. You're right. At least in this episode too, Matthew McConaughey comes out and says, yeah, I'm a bummer to be around. I know it. That's why I'm not trying to date people. And that's why I thought I was good for the job is because I'm a depressing person. And maybe that's why I find his character to be so much more interesting and oddly enough, more fun to spend time with than Woody Harrelson, who is kind of a cliched protagonist from another detective film or TV series who has affairs, who is a womanizer, who does it all for the family, quote unquote, but is a complete hypocrite. I kind of feel like Woody Harrelson is, if, if especially if Woody Harrelson wasn't playing this role, I would get even more annoyed with him. But since it's Woody Harrelson, I'm buying it. And you're right, if, if it was, I don't know, who's a, like, if, it, if Paul Dano, for some reason, why, because uh, Paul Dano, I find to be kind of an actor who's in a lot of downers, if Paul Dano was uh, Matthew McConaughey's character and was just monotonous and depressing in one note, I would find both of these people insufferable. But you're right, because the acting is so good, and the writing is good for the most part, I think that it makes it quite good. And also, it, the, the show looks great. I think there are a number of shots that look great in this show. And like last week, there were a lot of medium shots, especially in scenes where they're interviewing members of the victim's family or friends. But especially when they're doing a shot of the locations, I thought they're just gorgeous. Even in their own twisted, very dark way, I feel like it's a very good looking show. So yeah, it's, it's kind of familiar territory that we're treading through here. But I haven't seen this type of detective drama done so well for a long time, and I'll take it over The Killing any day, because The Killing was so good, and then it just went spiraling downhill and broke my heart into a million pieces to the point where I didn't watch any other season after the first one. Real quick, all I'll say about Paul Dano is that if he was on True Detective, he'd be the killer, obviously, because it's Paul Dano. <laughs> but uh, He would be the killer, and everyone would beat the shit out of him in every other scene. Yes. I'm pretty sure that's in his contract, that he has to be punched in the face at least five times during every movie. <laughs> even 12 Years a Slave, I mean, come on, like, he's in power there, and he even gets the shit kicked out of him, but... <laughs> yeah, getting back to the show's visual style, uh, real quick, I, I just want to mention, we talked last week about how... Most of the shots seemed to be static a lot of the time, and a lot of them were at shoulder or eye level, and how the most dynamic camera work happened around the crime scene. This episode, there's a shot near the beginning where the camera is up above in the office looking down at the little plant double trap thing that they found at the end of the last episode, and the camera starts off directly above it looking down at it and then swoops down beside it and it's a really noticeable camera move because we don't see moves like that on the show or, or even in television in general most of the time and that really stuck out to me how again it seems like the most dynamic camera work is happening around this devil trap this object that's related to the killing that's when the camera is at its most active. That's a good point, because the only other times I can think of the camera being active is when the characters are active, and by that I mean driving. Because the only other shots I can think of where it's not a medium shot or it's moving is when they're driving. So they're technically in motion when the camera's in motion. And yeah, you're right. That's the only shot I can think of in this episode where the camera had a very dynamic shot that was, I assume, used with a crane, where it was very stylish and it definitely grabs your attention and I can see why they use that at the beginning of the show because it really sucks you into the episode especially because they're talking about yeah we don't know why that was found at the crime scene and we still don't by the end of the episode they kind of bring that up and then it's never brought up again 
but the fact that it was introduced with such a stylish introduction clearly signifies that that's going to come back at some point to be vital in the case. Just maybe not right now. Right. I mean, I mean, the camera does move at times during the show, but it's very slight. It'll just be really simple dollies and, and things like that. And it doesn't get very elaborate unless it's stuff related to the killing, which, which I, I think is really interesting. The last thing I want to say... <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything. I was thinking of how uh, Matthew McConaughey's character Cole is single. He's having some lady problems in 2012. I wonder what his OK Cupid profile looks like. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that would be amazing if uh, <laughs> the character from Looking comes across Matthew McConaughey's character from True Detective's OK Cupid profile. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's uh, a little bit about yourself? Well, I don't think people should reproduce. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad my little girl died because I spared her the sin of being a father. Yeah. <laughs> Overall, I'm, I'm a very pessimistic person. <laughs> What's the first thing people notice about me? I wear people down and I'm not fun to be around. <laughs> <laughs> a true detective looking crossover. That's exactly what we need right now. <laughs> what do you like to do at night? Pretty much anything because I don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just imagine for some reason, like, Patrick from Looking, like, I don't know, has to buy Quaaludes for Matthew McConaughey's character, and then, like, shows up, uh, but Matthew McConaughey, for some reason, only posts the pictures of him from 1995 on OKCupid or something, and then he shows up, and that's the 2012 Matthew McConaughey, he's like, oh, uh, never mind, (laughs) I don't know. I I wonder how many people are actually watching HBO live on Sunday nights, this is, again, another random tangent. I feel like it's a very interesting lineup they have on Sunday nights. They go from True Detective straight in to Girls and Looking. And <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like you might get a little bit of whiplash <laughs> from that. Maybe, but that's probably the best order you can go in. I mean, Girls and uh, Looking, I guess, are interchangeable. But at least they show True Detective first because it's the darkest show. And then they give you something to laugh about. Right, right. All right. Is there anything else you would like to say about seeing things, the second episode of True Detective? I hope it picks up the pace just a little bit, but for the most part, I'm really intrigued. And even if it doesn't, I'm sure I'll be more entertained by small little character moments as opposed to the murder mystery, which we have seen before, despite the fact that it is done really well. Right. I'm still on board with the show. I think it's a really interesting take on the murder mystery genre, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. I agree with you. I think they might have to pick up the pace a tiny bit, especially if it's going to be primarily character-focused. We're going to need to get some more twists or reveals or something that dramatically changes things. Otherwise, I feel like it could start to feel a little redundant. Like, oh, look, here are these. here's this broken guy who's kind of weird, and here's this guy struggling with his marriage. And that's it. I, you know, I, I think they're going to – they will have to switch things up a little bit. But mm-hmm. I, I'm confident that they'll be able to do it if these first two episodes are any indication. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. Maybe Matthew McConaughey will uh, start passing out and having dreams where a midget speaks backwards and Laura Palmer's there. Maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe at the end of the eighth episode, it, we'll find out it was all in Matthew McConaughey's head and he's still in the psych ward. He's actually a lost character from Twin Peaks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's in the psych ward and he's he's looking at the snow globe and and that's what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> it's all Matthew McConaughey's perspective of a snow globe. Yes, like like 
<laughs> St. Elsewhere, man. They could repeat the St. Elsewhere ending. In Louisiana. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for this episode. Uh, We'd love to get your feedback on the show. Don't forget, you can call and leave us a voicemail either through the website or at 336-793-2509. You can email us at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That really helps us out a lot in terms of getting the word out about the show. Uh, That'd be a big help to us. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. Just click the donate button at filmgeekradio.com. Or you can go to our affiliates page. Uh, We are affiliated with a few websites, including Amazon. If you use our website to uh, get to Amazon, uh, anything you purchase will get a small percentage of that. So you can buy something for yourself and help us out at the same time. And, and, and that really helps us out a lot. Don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, and the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast, which is all about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC. Charlie, where can people find you online? You can find my work at edgebostonandmoviemezzanine.com, and you can also listen to me and Andrew discuss both the eighth and final season of Dexter, as well as the third season of Homeland under both the Avenging Angels section for Dexter and the briefing room for Homeland. And you can also follow me on Twitter at ctnash91. That's ctnash91. I'm senior editor of Movie Mezzanine. You can find some of my film reviews at moviemezzanine.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I'll follow you back so we can keep talking about True Detective. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And we're just chum in the water, man. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!